Episode number one out of 100. It's Fish and Paul Bunyan Country. I'm Kev Jackson. Glad to have you back on board for the next 20 weeks or so as we do nothing but talk fishing in Paul Bunyan Country. For those of you not aware, Paul Bunyan Country has expanded. Our show has now moved into the Brainerd area, so more lakes and more fish to talk about. It's going to be a great year. As always, we're going to start the year with one of our favorite people, Henry Drews, the Northwest Regional Fisheries Manager, and get the state of the fishery. Plus, after a one-year COVID-forced hiatus, Ask the Aquatic Biologist is back. Dr. Andrew Haves will be joining us on our first episode of the year and every Monday to answer a tough question about fish. It's the first episode of Fish in Paul Bunyan Country. Henry, after a long winter, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's good to talk to you about fishing, Kevin. Absolutely, and certainly there's been people out doing it already as we've had, uh, well, it's been an unpredictable spring, but but the water's been open for a while, and I'm sure a lot of people are out there. Um, what are you hearing from your guys in the field as far as this early ice out, what it's going to mean for um, where the fish will be in the opener and where they're going to be in their uh, in their cycle? Well, it certainly was a fickled spring. You know, we had um, not record, but very early ice out. But that was followed by three weeks of, of below average temperature weather and a number of snowfalls. So at this point in time, you know, the fish are a little bit fickle. They're a little mixed up. We just recently completed all of our walleye spawning operations, and that dragged out a lot longer than it normally takes. We did achieve our quotas. But based on what we've seen so far um, with weather and water temperatures and that, I think we're we're very fortunate to have a May 15th opener this year. I think it's going to give give those waters another week, week and a half and uh, you know compared to some years to warm up and get those fish post spawn active and I think if weather projections hold go heading into the opener, we should have a real good fishing season kickoff. Okay. Well, I know uh talking to the guys this spring versus last spring there's uh it seems to be a spring in their step, if you will, as they're able to get out there and do some of the things that they were not able to do last year. And guys who are in this business aren't in this business to sit at the desk, usually. You know, you get, you get into fisheries because you love doing the field work. And, um, you know, it was a short stop last spring with the onset of the COVID pandemic. We didn't do any spawning operations. And, and that's a really the kickoff for our field season, so... We did finally get back out in the field later in June doing some lake surveys, but but we didn't have, you know, the big spring pulse of activity. This year with COVID protocols in place, we were able to get out in the, get out you know, on the water right away. Um, we were embarking on all of our normal spawning activities. And there is, as you say, a spring in the step. Folks are, folks are working hard. They're glad to be out there. Um, like I said, we got into this business because we like being in the field. That's where people are at home. That's where they feel comfortable, and um, that's what what uh, excites them a lot. 
If you're a silver lining type of person, one of the things that was a positive, and we hope it's a positive long term for fishing and hunting, was the fact that there wasn't a lot of other things going on. Uh, fishing was a great activity people could still do, and we saw it in spades with a, a lot of increases in license sales, trout stamp sales, all of that stuff, uh, hunting sales as well. Yeah, you know, last spring uh, we didn't know what to expect in terms of fishing activity, but we started tracking the trout stamp sales. That's kind of the first season that kicks off in, in mid-April down in southeast Minnesota in particular, and, and the, the trout stamp sales were a record. We set a record for trout stamp sales. Little did we know that that was going to continue right on through the summer with real high levels of participation. You know, last year, overall, for, for fishing license sales in Minnesota, it was like the second highest in the last 20 years, uh, 10% higher than the previous year. So, so yeah, people got out there. They enjoyed it. We saw the accesses were full. Fantastic. Um, as we get out of the gate in, in 2021, we're seeing another um, um Spate of trout stamp sales in the southeast, ten percent already higher than what we saw last year. So this this uh, activity level that we saw in 2020 looks to be extending right into 2021, and that is very good news for the fishing world and the recruitment of new anglers into the sport. I've actually just felt this um, momentum growing in fishing the last, I'd say, five years or so, and I think a lot of it. Not you know certainly, you know not having a lot of other options was helpful in getting people to experience it maybe for the first time or maybe for the first time in a long time. But uh, the high school explosion of teams, in, at least in the state of Minnesota, uh, and, and the college level teams, I think has really changed the face of fishing in the next generation. But it's sure got a lot of kids fishing um, for for some species they maybe wouldn't have had they not had a competitive fishing team to join. You know, I think that's another gateway. The competitive fishing at the middle school and high school levels is a gateway um, into the outdoors, into a sport like fishing, uh, into turkey hunting. And um, any gateway you have to get the youth involved in our outdoor activities is good. The state parks saw record use last year. Um, they, they do a lot of programs called I Can Camp, I Can Fish, I Can Hike, I Can Snowshoe. Those programs, you know, just off the charts participation. And so there's a whole lot of venues that are getting people active in the outdoors, and, and they're all very, very important. It's, a, it's a, a mosaic more than it is any single one thing that's contributing to what we're seeing, and um, it's good. It's, it's not only good for, for uh, healthy lifestyles, it's good for the participation in the sport. Uh, hunters and anglers, their license sales um, contribute a great deal to this state. We don't just manage fish. We manage lake water quality. We manage watershed health. All of those things benefit all Minnesotans, not just the people that fish and hunt. So uh, the folks that are buying licenses are contributing to conservation efforts from one corner of the state to the other. Later on in the show, the Indiana Jones of aquatic biology, Dr. Andrew Hayes of Bemidji State University joins us. I might have oversold that. Up next, though, more with Henry Drews. This is Fish and Paul Bunyan Country, presented by Northland Fishing Tackle. (music) 
This is Fishing Paul Bunyan Country. My guest today is Henry Drews, the Northwest Regional Fisheries Manager. And as always, we're kicking off the year with a look at the state of the fishery. One of the things that we, we saw even prior to COVID, and I'm sure we saw a, a very strong uh, uptick again this year, was the amount of winter pressure on some of those lakes that are, are well-known. Lake of the Woods and Red in our particular area saw have seen a lot of winter pressure is it to the point that it concerns us yet? Well, we're we're fortunate that on our large lakes we do do a lot of creel surveys so we can keep track of harvest levels, and we have annual monitoring on those large lakes. So so as we detect or if we detect trends and downturns in, in the abundance of fish in certain size groups and that, we can adjust the regulations. And, and as we've talked over the years, you've seen how we've done that. We've made regulations tighter on some lakes then we loosen them up when that population recovers or gets stronger. So we have the ability to do adaptive management and respond on those large lakes. Another example for you is um, given some of the trends on Lake of the Woods, two years ago we reduced the aggregate bag of walleye and soccer on on Lake of the Woods to six. It used to be eight. Um, We reduced uh, uh, the spring fishery on the Rainy River from a two-bag limit to catch and release only. So we are making adjustments based on how much pressure and harvest is occurring um, so we can maintain high-quality fisheries in those systems. One of the things that I, I've seen in some places anyway, it seems like an increase in the size of walleyes. Um, one of the guys I interviewed a week or so ago during that catch-and-release season on Rainy River, one day, six over 30. Um, so, well, there's there's some fish that are that are growing and lasting longer. The the catch and release ethic is definitely paying off here. It is it, it is, and it's a combination of voluntary release on you know on those lakes um, that have regulations uh, for the really large fish, but also lakes that don't have regulations. Um, so it's catch and release plus the regulations, and and not only are those large fish um, very valuable on the end of the line for the angler that catches that trophy, but Large, old fish are indicative of a healthy population. If you have a fishery that has fish, you know, from 20 to 28 inches and the occasional 30-incher, that means that they are surviving 8, 10, 12 years and that that harvest isn't so high that none of that population makes it to that age. So those, those large fish are a bonus for anglers and a sign of a healthy fishery. So we really like to see that. So um, I've talked to the guys on, on various lakes. You know, we always preview some of the biggies in the area. And everything that I've heard, and you know, some of the smaller Lake of the Week stuff that we, we'll hear as the season goes on, everything seems to be in pretty good shape. Everybody's pretty happy. The big uh, caveat continues to be AIS. In particular, we want to keep it off those that don't have it yet. But with those that do, um, there's not a whole lot we can do at this point, is there? No, there really isn't, um, and we're still. It's it's really all. I don't want to. I don't want to emphasize it's an experiment, but we're all learning as we go. You know, uh, lakes in north central Minnesota, those that have had fever mussels for quite some time. You know, we're starting to see some trends in those lakes. You know, of reduced productivity on other lakes. We don't know if the zebra mussels. Uh, I mentioned like Lake of the Woods or Red, for example. We don't know if zebra mussels will attain a high density there like we've seen in other lakes. Um, so we're watching, we're learning, we're monitoring those systems, we're trying to ascertain what the impacts of those invasive species are, and is there anything management-wise we can do to adapt 
to having those those system changes that are out there. One of the things that has just gone into effect as of the 1st of March was the uh, the lakes that are affected by the new panfish initiative. There was a lot of study done. There was a lot of committee meetings. And eventually, uh, was it 65 lakes statewide that uh, adopted a five-sunfish uh, five limit? I think it was probably 65 with five and then another 20 or 30 or so with um with a 10 bag. Okay, okay. So um, when we moved forward into last fishing season, 2020, we had about 118 lakes that we proposed for special regulations. Uh, they came to us from uh, interest in lake associations, interest in anglers, our data that showed a lake had a history of producing large sunfish. So we spent all last year getting public input on that batch of lakes. And, and out of that 118, we're implementing darn near 100 of those, or we did this past March. The interest in that when we went out and got public input was overwhelming. The support for those lakes was approaching 85%. So we implemented a, a large proportion of those that we proposed, and we also have um, generated through that process uh, interest in consideration of another 50 or 60 lakes that we're going to be taking input on this year. So hugely popular um, that that is now in effect on these these basins. And in in your listening area, there's probably 50, 60 waters just in this area that either have five or ten bag limits. Anglers are encouraged to check the regulations booklet if they're not familiar with these changes, and, and also they'll see signs that the public accesses. In the fishing pole bunion country, some of the really uh, noteworthy ones are the Cass Lake chain. Well, all the lakes in the Cass Lake chain will have a five bag on bluegills. And on Leech Lake, the Leech Lake will have a five bag on bluegills and a five bag on crappie. So th- these are major systems. And, and these proposals on the large lakes were brought to us by our fisheries input groups on those two lakes with very strong resor- uh, support from the resort community. You know, I uh, uh, we had right here in this area prior to this even going into effect, we had a couple of really good examples of what that five-bag limit can do on Paimouche and Black Duck Lake. Those lakes turned into um, places that had great size of bluegills on them. And I would add Gull Lake to that. That's list. right, um, yep. Those lakes, um, you know, they were kind of a, um, they were kind of a testimonial. Uh, we had a, a pretty good idea that these regulations would be effective at either sustaining or improving the size of sunfish. We put those regulations on with public support, and lo and behold, um, we have outstanding bluegill fisheries on those lakes. And they get pressured. Um, Gull and Paimouche in particular get a tremendous amount of pan fishing pressure, and those, that five bag has helped those lakes hold up to that pressure and still produce 9- to 10-inch bluegills. So... I think those testimonials of lakes you referenced are the ones that help sell people on all the other lakes that we propose. Henry Drews, the Northwest Regional Fisheries Manager, my guest today on Fish and Paul Bunyan Country. Got a lot more to cover with Henry. We'll have to wait until tomorrow because right now it's time to... Ask the aquatic Well, after a COVID-enforced year off, uh, we're back face-to-face with the aquatic biologist, Dr. Andrew Haves from Bemidji State University. Man, it's good to have you back, Andy. Oh, did I miss you. <laughs> <laughs> nice to see you again and hear from you. Yeah, thanks Thanks for joining us. It was, you know, because I just, I love the discussions, um, even though I don't understand 
you know, all of it. I do enjoy the conversations. I got good reports from people, and so uh, I think everybody's going to be glad that you're back on the show. Well, I'm happy to be back. I really missed it last year. Yeah, so did I. It was a weird year. I mean, uh, obviously you get to fish a lot more probably than than you have in most years. <laughs> Definitely hunting. I'm more of a hunter. <laughs> oh, Remember okay. the other the wildlife professor on campus fished more for sure too. So, <laughs> yes. Well, let's talk a little bit about some fish today. Um, we're going to start off with an interesting question that we got from one of your students. Uh, basically. Um, how do fish breathe? We know that they need oxygen like everybody else, including us. So how do fish breathe when they're, and why do they suffocate when they're out of water when there's actually more oxygen out of water than there is in water? Yeah, that's really interesting. We talk about this in my uh, ichthyology class quite a bit. And so the, the gills and the lungs that we have, right, so the gills in the fish and the lungs in humans kind of function in one similar manner in terms that they're just trying to, there's a bunch of surface area there, right? And so... The gills have this extraordinary amount of surface area that's for the oxygen to diffuse across into the blood, right? There's a very thin layer of tissue that's actually present between the blood and uh, the water, which has the O2 in it. And so when the fish are in the water, those gills float and are all separate, and all of that surface area is present, right? And as soon as you take that fish out of the water, it's like a wet feather, that just clumps together, right? And and so they're, the surface area that they have to actually extract the oxygen goes down extraordinarily, right? And so essentially it's like us having a collapsed lung at that point, right? When, okay. And so even though, like you said, there's far more oxygen in the atmosphere than there is in the water, fish really struggle to breathe when they're out of the water because their gills have collapsed. If a fish is out of the water, how much time does it have? <laughs> so that depends a great deal uh, among the species and the temperatures and things like that. And so, uh, for instance, like if you had a catfish or a bullhead that doesn't have the scales, they can actually use their skin a little bit to, to absorb some O2. So, um, And they're also uh, tolerant to low O2 conditions to begin with. So they can uh, persist out of the water for much longer. And there's even some forms of catfish that have specialized organs to maintain the gills open and things like that. Uh, so they can actually walk across the land, you know, when it's raining out and things. So, wow. yeah, just some crazy structures like that and adaptations. And then other fish just don't do well at all when they're out of the water, you know. And so then it could be just, you know, anything more than 30 seconds and they're really having a tough time. Just hold your breath and imagine the fish is doing the same thing. Right? Okay. And that's a pretty good measure. So if we're out fishing and we're doing catch and release by and large and we want to take a picture, you got to get it up, you got to get it taken, and you got to get in the water in a very yeah. short amount of time. Yeah, for sure. And it definitely depends on the temperatures, too. I've seen a lot of research on this. Um, there's been some of that, some really quality research done in Minnesota, actually, on the walleye populations. And uh, warmer temperatures, it's harder on those fish. And then the subsequent mortality would go up uh, the longer they're out of the water, especially in warm water conditions. Okay. So, in warm air conditions. I know you're not a marine biologist. That's George Costanza's, Costanza's <laughs> job. <laughs> but, you know, we've got dolphins and we've got whales, and they use blowholes, and they do some – Do they? is that breathing or how, what is yeah, that? Yeah. I mean, those are, they're not fish. They don't even have gills, right? So uh, that's completely different. They're actually reliant on the O2 in the atmosphere at that point. So, so they, But they just don't need to 
have it as consistently as as we do as humans, since they can be under the water for long periods of time as well. Yeah, or I mean, can you're they store it? Or pushing what? my limits here in <laughs> knowledge base, but yeah, and even humans, if you practice holding your breath longer, you can do better and better at that, right? I mean, I, if I tried to hold my breath right now, it'd probably be 15 seconds that I'd be gasping. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, they're you know, and they're, so because they have to do that, they. Um, have adapted and can hold a breath longer, be more efficient at using the O2 that they have. Yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, as far as fish goes, I would say basically most of the fish we catch here, catfish if you go over to the Red River, but most of the fish we catch here, specifically in what we would call Paul Bunyan country in the Bemidji and Brainerd Lakes area, they're, they're uh, scale-based fish. They're not going to have – they don't have a lot of time. You gotta, That's right. you got to take care of them and get them in the water quick. Yeah, and especially when it's really, really warm out. Okay. Before we wrap it up, uh, you're back in classroom, but are students back in classroom yet? We're hoping to next fall, and I'm going to do everything in my power uh, to get the fish back, or get the, not the fish, get the <laughs> students back on the pontoon boat next fall. Yep. Well, I would think that uh, one of the things, one of the big selling points we've talked about this of Bemidji State's um, aquatic biology program is your classroom is the lake, and it's right there. And so when they're sitting at home, it's you're not getting quite what they but they want it probably. Oh, for sure. And I, I know that that's been tough on the students and the, and the faculty members alike. And I'm really missing the students and looking forward to, you know, getting back out on the lake with them and getting some hands-on experience. They're probably really sick of learning about statistics <laughs> and math from me. So <laughs> I want to squeeze some fish again. Okay. Well, I know that um, we're able to do some tours this summer uh, in person. So I think we're moving in the right direction there. Yeah, I hope so. so. Dr. Andrew Hafes is the aquatic biologist at Bemidji State University, uh, BSU, one of the few, maybe only, colleges in the state of Minnesota that has a full-fledged aquatic biology program, correct? That's definitely one of our strengths, for sure. All right. Andy, thanks for your time today. We appreciate yeah, it. Thank you. Just a reminder that we are podcastable, so rather than miss an episode, just subscribe to the podcast at Podcast One on the Pod MN app or wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Paul